This edition of Monocle on Sunday was first broadcast on the 31st of October 2021 at 10am CET. COP26, the UN Climate Change Summit, begins later today in Glasgow. More than 20,000 delegates from 200 countries will be there to announce how they will cut emissions by 2030. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the summit will be the world's moment of truth, but some are suggesting the summit lacks teeth, with the leaders of both Russia and China staying away. Japan is holding a general election today. It's being seen as critical in providing Fumio Kishida, the country's new leader, with a public mandate he says he needs. The ruling Liberal Democratic Party faces its biggest electoral challenge in almost a decade as it faces an ageing electorate that is weary of the COVID-19 pandemic. Saudi Arabia has ordered Lebanon's ambassador to leave by Sunday over insulting comments by a Lebanese minister. The Gulf Kingdom has also imposed a blanket ban on all imports from Lebanon. And Shaking Hands is back. A British polling company suggests that in a group of young people, all but one said they had gone back to Shaking Hands when meeting. The survey, published in the UK's Sunday Telegraph newspaper this morning, also reports on an evolutionary biologist who says our instincts to link hands and fingers after conflict can be traced back to our chimpanzee ancestors. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. Now it's time to cross from a soaking wet London to a bright and sunny Zurich for this week's Monocle on Sunday. Our editorial director, Tyler Brule, is standing by. Good morning, Tyler. Plenty of, plenty of firm handshakes all round where you are, I hope. There are, but I have to say good morning, uh, Emma. But, uh, but Ben O'Zog here is making faces. I don't know, he just didn't like the word <laughs> chimpanzee or interlinked fingers, but uh, we can be discussing that a little <laughs> bit later, I think. <laughs> I want to know what's wrong with chimpanzee and interlinked fingers. Or we're going to find that out in a minute. I think we'll we'll wait till maybe sometime after 10.30 to find out a little bit uh, more about that. Uh, Aside from soggy London, what else is happening uh, over that way today? All is well. Um, It's incredibly soggy, so everyone's retreating indoors, looking at what's happening in COP and trying not to give it too much attention um, and lots and lots and lots of trick-or-treating so I should be asking Chandra uh, for, for, for advice as to what to drink through a witch mask later on this afternoon in fact any any um, any costume advice would go frankly very very down down very well down here in London Okay, well, Chandra's just got her like sort of sort of blank, dumbfounded face about that. But <laughs> anyway, um, we're going to perk things up, and we'll be talking to you in twenty-seven minutes. Monocle on Sunday starts now. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guests today, Ben Ozog, Nina Kunz and Chandra Kurt. They're all here to talk about the weekend's biggest stories. Benno, you're right here. What's caught your eye? Well, no doubt the weekend was all about major summits, international summits. We're talking about COP26 as well as the G20 summit. It's unavoidable, but also another lighter story, I guess, Prices in the UK for sparkling wine are going down, but for your breakfast are going up. Curious. Okay, Okay. well, Chandra can also help dissect that as well. We're also heading over to Thailand to hear from our correspondent over there. I'm Gwen Robinson in Bangkok, and I'm going to be telling you about Thailand's grand reopening after a long lockdown. Also, we'll be talking to Christoph Ahmed from Zeit Magazine. He'll be telling us what's making headlines in his part of the world. It's the 31st of October 2021. Happy Halloween. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. 
And good morning, as we said, from a very, very sunny Zurich. It's a little bit damp, uh, wet leaves all over the street, uh, but aside from that, it looks like a very, very promising day. You might have heard in the uh, intro, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that, uh, of course, there's news out of the UK. Of course, the people are shaking hands, which is good news. But while we were reading that news report, Ben Zog, who is here this morning, uh, of course, uh, a regular voice, also our security correspondent, was making faces. Or were you making faces? I, I'm not sure what that was. Or you're just not, you weren't buying it, Benno. <laughs> I was not making faces. That was an accusation. I quite like a good handshake and I missed it during the pandemic and you yourself Tyler have a very firm one and if that goes back to the chimpanzee, chimpanzees it only me, me, makes it more natural to actually shake hands. Good to hear. Chandra Kurt is also here uh, this morning. Chandra good morning. Good morning Tyler. How are we today? I'm sober. No I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, does this uh, sort of suggest a late evening or? No no they, they, you know now it's actually already 11 o'clock so I feel my, my bloody Mary pushing on Sunday lunchtime so but uh, Okay well I'm, I'm looking across to, to Desiree over here whether there is tomato juice in the bar this morning uh, we can see but anyway <laughs> the, the, the branch of Kopic Stadelhofen is not very far away. I'm, I'm very happy to say you know, Emma at the start of the show said a lot of regular voices uh, trusted voices uh, but we have a new voice uh, around the table uh, here this morning. Uh, Nina Kunz is here. She's an author. She's a journalist. She's a columnist. She writes uh, for Zeit Magazine, the new uh, Schweizer Ausgabe, also uh, with the Tagus Anzeiger. And it's been, we saw this a little bit, there was sort of an escalation almost a bit earlier because there was the war of the books around the table a little <laughs> bit, wasn't there? So uh, Nina also has a new book out, Ich denk, Ich denk zu viel. Uh, I think, I think a lot. Uh, maybe we'll start by first by saying uh, good morning. Well, good morning and thank you so much for having me. Not, not at all. Tell us a little bit about the book first. Well, the book is called I Think I Think Too Much, well, in English. Um, it came out in March and it has spent 30 weeks on the bestseller list in Switzerland, which is really overwhelming. I never thought this was going to happen. And it's about rumination and it's a collection of 30 essays that deal with contemporary issues. And this is, uh, I was just saying before we went on air, this came out b before the ruminating started, but well before the pandemic. It wasn't one of these titles. It was just rushed to press uh, because you were having deep, deep thoughts starting in, in March of last year. No, we were actually waiting to put it out because the bookstores were closed. Everything was very uncertain and it was so great to go out with this book. And I kind of the first two months were just Zoom readings and then it was masked readings and now it's real readings and I see people and their faces and it's marvelous. Well, very good to have you. I'm also happy to say Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, uh, is I think he's in the UK, I believe. I've heard uh, rumours that he's heading, uh, not, not, to the, uh, not to the COP summit, but he's heading to another COP. He's heading to Copenhagen. Uh, Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Tali. I'm going there this evening at the end of the day. But yeah, I'm, I'm firmly in, in a very rain-lashed London this morning. Uh, and tell us about uh, Copenhagen. I believe that there is another type of summit uh, which is uh, on the cards. Uh, yes, slightly, I think, more modest <laughs> numbers of people flying in for it. But it's, it's a, a, a city's uh, summit looking at, uh, at the role of culture and big events in, in shaping how our cities become more livable. And also, uh, they, they want an outside perspective on, on why Copenhagen continues to do so well in our livability indexes. So I'm going to talk about you know, why we set that index up and, and what it means and, and how it's adapted over time as well.
Andrew, maybe just uh, staying on the, the, the Glasgow uh, theme as well, but also what you'll be talking about in Copenhagen uh, as well, because it's interesting that we've, we've been through almost a decade of people talking about, you know, the power of cities and, of course, what you can do at, at a grassroots level. level. But if um, you look north uh, from where you are towards uh, Glasgow, is you know, we of course, we have uh, Russia absent, of course, uh, a rather significant player in all of this, uh, even more significant at China. So here we're dealing with things at, at a, again, at a federal, national level. Uh, do you think all Already, is there enough dialogue about what happens within an urban context? What happens outside of your front door um, and, and the level of mobilization that needs to happen there? Or do you think, or, or is it a situation where people think, well, actually, we're already doing enough in daily life. We'd like to see things happening uh, maybe more from the top end uh, than, than at the bottom end. Well, uh, and, and you know, it, I'm not sure where everybody stands sometimes when these, these things happen. But I think what we've seen ever since the, the Paris talks, where you had a U.S. administration that didn't want to get involved in the debates about climate change, that what often happens is that the, the, the takeaways from these events get picked up much quicker by actually by civic leaders, by your by your mayor, by, by your, your, your local authority and put into action. So that happened in the U.S. after the Paris talks, you know, that many very powerful leaders at a civic level said, look, we, we are going to meet these climate demands. We, we, we understand that this is a, real, a genuine crisis. And here in the UK, you see this tension between a, a city mayor like we have in London, who is determined to kind of go faster than what's happening at the national level. So we have a, a thing called here, a ULEZ zone, which it stops people really bringing in diesel cars now into, into the city. It, it benefits people who have newer cars. Now, there's rights and wrongs on, on, on all the sides of these arguments. But I think that will happen again here, that even in, in countries which uh, may be seen to be a little bit laggard on these, on these topics, you will find civic leaders, you know, even places like Russia and China, who will be determined to, to respond because they see the crisis act, act, happening in, in their actual cities. Uh, Benno, if you look uh, across uh, to, to Glasgow as well, and, and maybe just uh, we'll start with um, maybe um, a sharper question in terms of outcomes. Uh, and by the time we get to, to the end of this, by the time things wrap, um, are, are we going to see you know, quite a clear set of marching orders are, or are we going to be sort of, you know, faced with, yeah, uh, another sort of, you know, protracted period, uh, of course, just figuring out what comes and how do you unravel what, what will be discussed and tabled in Glasgow? Mm-hmm. Well, unlike see any revolutions but the good thing in a way is that we can go back to the 2015 Paris Agreement which set very ambitious goals and there is still this reference to the 1.5 degrees goal um, others talk of two degrees we're probably heading towards three degrees um, currently so we can't probably expect any breakthroughs for, for a variety of reasons but even in, in previous months and years some countries have come out for example Russia declaring they want to go net carbon neutral by 2060 which isn't overly ambitious particularly given their strong industrial history and now they do emit less anyway um, but that's somewhat surprising China named the same year others go for 2050 so there is a, an increase in a way of setting goals of setting targets even if they're far in the, in the future so that's something one one can build upon um, and the UK being the host of the summit is actually kind of a leader on all of that in and of itself their energy mix is fairly low on on carbohydrates so that's that's a bit of a bit of a start makes one somewhat optimistic i guess part of the summit same as the G20 that just concluded in Rome was also just to reconnect after the pandemic to be there in person and that's a value in and of itself because as we've seen in in Rome just these days um meeting shake 
shaking hands, having site meetings, not just digital, has its value and may help to for countries to come to somewhat of an agreement and actually um, agree on certain things with, on which they wouldn't otherwise in a Zoom meeting, I guess. Mm. Um, Andrew, what else is making uh, news this morning? Obviously, a lot of, uh, of course, uh, headlines at the end of last week about uh, the Queen saying she's going to, to take off uh, two weeks or she's been ordered to take two weeks off, not going, uh, of course, to Glasgow, which they said she was very much looking forward to. Uh, is this uh, part of uh, the what, what we'll be seeing at least on the front or the third page of the paper this morning? Yes, yeah, so if you want to uh, dive into the tabloids, they're saying you that you, you can get every every angle on the story. You know, the, the poor Queen is being put under pressure because you know the likes of Harry have kind of uh, f- fled to America. The Prince Andrew is is caught up in some legal tussle. So that supposedly this has put added pressure on the Queen, and they're saying that the likes of Camilla are going to step forward to take some of the appointments would have, would have fallen to her or at least accompany her in the future if she does you know, restart her diary. I don't think people are too worried about the, the Queen in the, on the front pages today, but they are looking a bit at kind of Prince Charles and Camilla because you, you can see that there is a, a sense that it, it might not be too long before they're in, the, in the, the key positions and the old debate always flares up whether it should leap one generation and, and go to William and have a, a much younger uh, monarch in power. But yeah, that's a topic and of course this ends Endless, annoying, stupid battle over fishing rights between France and the UK, where it seems uh, that both Macron and, and Boris seem to think there are, there are constituents that they have to appease, and 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 their their behaviour is extraordinary, and it's it's just so annoying. This thing can't be wound down ahead of COP. Um, I've got Chandra standing by beside me. Chandra, maybe first, I mean, Nina's had a moment to talk about her book. Um, maybe your, your volume is much bigger than hers, I, I have to say. Um, and I haven't even, well, I know there's, there's also a lot more pictures as well, which is which is always nice in a book as well. But tell us uh, about your new book. Okay, it's um, it's called Reisen mit Wein. It's it's, uh, it's 21 journeys to uh, eight countries to, to different wine places. And it happened also during this, this COVID year that I thought we cannot travel anymore. Or so, but we did in the Wine Cellar Journal, the magazine we produced. We always did big cover stories, so we took the cover stories together, modified them a bit, and uh, and of course, there's a lot of pictures, over 500 pictures, and we travel with the wine. So this is the title, you know, travel with wine, with a bottle of wine, because every behind every bottle, you know, there's a story, there's a country, there's a person, there's a, a memory. So when you open a bottle anywhere, you travel, and when you look now at the book, you have all these beautiful images, and um, it just came out the other week, and we will have here, I think. Uh, soon an opera, I think, uh, when is it? On the 9th of, of uh, November? Yes, indeed. Here in so the studio. All, all, of, all of our listeners, if you want to uh, to get a ticket and secure a spot for the book, then uh, then please uh, we'll do, bring do a drop lot of wine, a lot of wine from all over the, over the, the planet, and uh, then you can really feel what it means to travel with wine. Mm. Oh, let's uh, start with the, uh, the the maybe sort of the Halloween themed portion, or maybe it doesn't have to be Halloween themed. I mean, Andrew, you were just talking about obviously uh, the, the the fishing issues over uh, in in the UK at the moment. Is there is 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 there fish that you'd looking would be looking for a wine complement um, at at the moment? Are, are the are the shelves uh, reasonably uh, stocked and and looking robust at the moment? I I I I think that the, uh, the 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 fish counter seems to be doing okay. It's very funny all these shortages get talked up here in the UK. You know, and I think some of them are obviously genuine, but it's it's not actually impossible to feed yourself in Britain. You you can, you can still get your daily intake of ta- calories, I assure you. 
<laughs> okay, so give, give Chandra her, her her brief, Andrew. It's a it's it's a, it's a soggy it's a soggy Sunday. You don't have to consume this wine this evening, but uh, go, go for it with uh, with what you need from Chandra. Well, why do we we think big this week, Chandra? Tell me a, a wine that you think you you could you could drink that maybe was a little bit more gentle on the planet in in how it's made and how it's produced and the, the number of miles it travels. What would be, what would be your your pick for a, for a wine to serve to all the dignitaries turning up at the COP talks? Perfect. You know, I love <clears throat> I love to think big, so we will find something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Benno, over over to you. I'll describe my very setting actually tonight. We're cooking something along the lines of ratatouille or something similar-ish. And um, what wine would go with that? Ideally, it's a wine that I already have in my shelf somewhere um, because that's a sustainable option, I think. And it also helps with... Well, because this this involves you inviting Chandra around to look at the shelf uh, as well and, and, and then, then establishing a there. Only ratatouille? We haven't really agreed on the rest of the menu. Okay, There'll be right. more. There's, 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 t- there's time to, to work on that. Um, Emma, o- o- over to you. Uh, very much a Halloween theme. Uh, good morning, Chandra. Good morning, um, Emma. So two things, please. One, uh, we have a glut of scooped out pumpkin in the fridge. So you can imagine what that's like. So we, we need something to perk that up a little bit. It will, I think, be turned into soup. It may go in the bin, but if it doesn't, please, could we have something to drink with it? And secondly, there is a trick-or-treating trip out this evening. Something to go in the hip flask, please. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nina, you, I mean, you, you're new to the uh, to the gig here, but I think you understand how it works. So, uh, so please tell uh, Chandra what, what you're in the market for. For wine... Wine-wise, I mean, Chanda sometimes goes off piste a little bit, but let's keep it to wine as a as, as a starter. Okay, I like dry wine that does not give me a headache. I'm not very picky. Price? Well, I mean, you've been on the bestseller list for thirty weeks, so <laughs> this 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 assumes that we can think big as well. Yeah, yeah, let's think big. Good. Very good. Um, Andrew, uh, just uh, just before we go, uh, in case we don't catch you before the the end of the program, uh, a little bit of a little bit of uh, Copenhagen. I'm sure it's going to put a spring in your step. I gave you a few little uh, tips of uh, places that uh, you might want to to venture uh, out into, and uh, maybe do wardrobe top up, or maybe a little, uh, maybe just to Im- improve, uh, you know, the way the the desktop looks, or, or whatever it may be. Uh, but uh, as you sort of step out into into the Nordic uh, world, this is sort of one of your first trips that you've sort of done, not tethered to. Zurich, not tethered to uh, to to uh, heading towards Palma. Um, little sense of excitement. Yes, and also because I'm, I'm going to be on stage talking. I suddenly realised this morning it's, it's, it's quite a, a while since outside of our events I've uh, I've done that. And then I'm on a panel as well, and I'm taking the opportunity, of course, to see our correspondent in the city and to uh, see your friend of mine, uh, uh, Thomas Licker. And so it would just be good to kind of uh, meet quite a few people on the ground and, and get their, their their view of things. But yeah, I am. It's it's it's, it's just good to go go out again and, and start telling the story of Monocle and and explaining to people what we've been up to. Well, Andrew, have a really, really uh, good time. I was uh, sort of blazing the trail there for you last week. It um, feels absolutely fantastic um, and very perky and, and alive. Uh, that's our Andrew Tucker, editor-in-chief uh, back in London. Benno, um, maybe let's um, uh, have a little um, look at uh, the front pages. Uh, you teased us with a couple of stories. Have we done COP already or do we need to spend more time uh, in, in Glasgow or do we want to move <laughs> on? And, or maybe, I mean, Nina, you had uh, one story out of The Economist um, as well. Maybe we just, this can be the, the final word maybe this morning before we move on to some other topics. Okay, 
I, I read so much uh, on COP this week and I try to find a good balance between devastating news and hopeful news. So I'm going to end with the optimism because um, in the leading article in The Economist this week, they had kind of four reasons why the conditions um, for Glasgow are so much better than six years ago in Paris and 12 years ago um, in Copenhagen. And they said it's, first of all, heightened awareness. It's totally different. Then we do know that... Um, um, fossil taxes work and they're efficient and there is just so much more research um, into renewable energy and I'm going to read one sentence. They say the main reason the COP process matters is that the science, diplomacy, activism and public opinion that supported make up the best mechanism the world currently has to help it come to terms with the fundamental truth. The dream of a planet of almost a billion people all living in material comfort will be unachievable if it is based upon an economy powered by coal, uh, coal oil and natural gas. Um, and, and your take on that, I mean, if you think about, and obviously we're touching on this, what happens at, at an urban level, at a city level, that this is oftentimes where you can get policy uh, cut through. I mean, when you when you get to the end of the economist's analysis, uh, what, is, what is Nina Kunz's take on this? That it's very difficult and that we don't only have to find a system where we do not um, have emissions, but also have investments and innovation to withdraw carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Mm. Uh, Benno, just uh, I said this was final word, but uh, <laughs> but but on, but on that, uh, you know, and you, you sort of talked about maybe the prospects that, that would would come um, out of this as well. Do you think we see something bigger emerge from this too? Because there seems to be also how do you square a number of topics? Because okay, let's say you know, if I really sort of feel committed uh, to all of this, and then China does not, you know, show up, you know, what am I then also doing as as a consumer? What is you know what is my view about either buying a car made in China uh, as to as to whether or not I want to buy a sweat made in China as well, because this this has, you know, quite significant ramifications when someone has just, you know, said for obviously what is, of course, you know, one of the most important headline events uh, really out of this last sort of 18 month, two year cycle. Yeah, we're not we're not showing up. I actually find this one of the most tricky issues when it comes to the whole climate um, and carbon challenge in and of itself, this, this gap between individual level behaviour and collective behaviour. We all know that certain states as a whole, certain companies like oil giants, for example, emit as much as dozens of dozens of millions of consumers um, emit. But so to find this balance between ourselves, obviously, we try to recycle, we try to fly less, we try try to take the train more, while at the same time trying to hold collectives, our own states, accountable and hoping for others where democratic ways don't work as well, um, follow suit. But I think one cannot be an excuse for the other, obviously, even if China is absent. Um, Xi Jinping wasn't in Rome. He, he will not be in Glasgow. He will only attend virtually from all I know. This doesn't mean that anyone else can be less committed. I sometimes try to think about it as a rich person, given a global global average level as a Swiss, um, I myself am responsible for maybe a billionth of CO2 emissions. So I try to take that responsibility serious, even if China is not at the table. Um, but I obviously hope China is there and they have pledged quite uh, quite strong um, levels of actual reduction. They're looking into renewables. So I'm even hopeful at the China front, let alone my individual level somewhat. Mm, and just uh, maybe stepping aside just from the, the topic of, of, of sustainability and COP in general, what does this say from a geopolitical perspective right now that we've seen in China not showing up in Rome and, and, uh, and of course, not in Glasgow? 
Um, the two absentees were actually China and Russia, two major emitters, Russia being a major producer of, of carbon carbon energy sources. Um, they themselves have pledged as countries um, to, to reduce their levels of emissions, that yes, but probably for a number of reasons, not just being climate policy, but also geopolitics overall. They're, they're not at the summit. They don't take it as seriously. They're not as keen to shake hands with leaders of Western governments and so on. So there's immediately a geopolitical component. And I would argue both from a Chinese and Russian perspective, it's also sometimes the accusation that all these goals about um, climate change, emission reduction and so on has a geopolitical component, for example, to weaken Russia as an energy producer. Um, and it's very tricky if these two issues are conflated, because in a way you would think we're all in the same boat when it comes to climate change. But as soon as geopolitical factors come in, some people think they're in a different boat or they're being punished for different reasons. So the geopolitical angle is often neglected when we talk about purely climate issues, but very much plays into it. And that makes it all the way trickier. Mm. Just um, maybe uh, again, before we, before we move on from this, uh, Nina, you had a story that you picked up from the Sontag Zeitung, which is maybe how consumers, of course, maybe square their relationship. Now, it's, it's climate based, but I mean, we can be talking about all kinds of also political issues going back to China you know the issues of, of Uyghurs uh, and uh, and of course uh, everything which is happening in in the extreme west of China. How do we feel about that uh, as, as well? And uh, I, I'm not sure if the Sontag Zeitung comes to some type of conclusion or it's simply a report. Well, that would be the devastating part that I was talking about earlier. They did a representative poll. I don't know how many people they asked. But the question they posed was, are you willing to pay more um, for heating, flights, um, what else was it, clothing and um, uh, gas, um, if that um, additional price would help to stabilize the climate? And spoiler, people are not willing to do that. Actually, in all four areas, 81 to 93% of people said they are not willing to pay anything or just a little bit more. And it's mostly men, young men, uh, young men from non-urban areas and young men from non-urban areas leaning towards right-wing politics that are not willing to do this. Mm. And does this come as any surprise? And obviously, we should probably say this is not a global poll. This is a, a poll which is, which is confined within the borders of, of Switzerland. Uh, your, your read on that, if we, and let's, let's not assume, but maybe for for a moment if we if we looked uh, yeah east to austria if we if we looked west to france north to germany uh, do you think the picture would be would be would be different outside of an urban urban context i'm not sure i mean the poll also says that women above the age of 65 in urban areas are most likely to pay more uh, i don't know i think the poll just shows the limits of as you said um, individual responsibility Mm. Uh, and it's it's a you know it's a it's a theme that we've been picking up on um, because on one side it is you can say look at if I if I have access to trams and if I if I live within an urban uh, environment uh, and maybe I don't have to go to uh, a food processing plant at four o'clock in the morning etc. You know there are many things which of course you know play to a vehicle and also if I'm only making I don't know fifty thousand francs a year or something so is 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 this type of poll helpful or is it just instructive Benno? 
I think it's awfully helpful, even though it's a sobering reality check, if you will. Sometimes we live in young urban bubbles and have a bit of a skewed picture of reality. As you say, this kind of reality that you described, Tyler, of someone with a low income who needs a car to go to work because there is no regular bus connection. Obviously, they feel at the end of the month uh, the petrol bill way more. So increases through taxes or general commodity price hikes are, are really hurtful. So finding the right balance but certain certain states and governments actually go quite far trying to redistribute certain things so the people who do um, fly transatlantic 10 times a year for business or for leisure reasons they pay a bit more and it's afterwards redistributed among the general population and i think that's that's certainly one model um that that can can help these people as well but it's will be hard to communicate that as well because the debate is very much dominated by this leftist urban elite, if you will, and by the wealthy. So to make sure everyone is somewhat on board on small measures that everyone can actually digest is really key. And that's not that easy, particularly given these days our polarized political discourse. Mm, it sounds like you're uh, maybe creating a business plan for a new media model uh, <laughs> as well, which uh, which could possibly uh, be part of a more interesting mix. Uh, it's uh, just coming up to, to the bottom of the hour right now, coming up uh, on Monocle uh, on Sunday, we're going to be crossing to Bangkok. Uh, shortly, we'll be talking to our Gwen Robinson, our correspondent, uh, of course, seeing what is going to be uh, happening as the country uh, starts to reopen uh, and what that's, of course, going to mean for the tourism industry uh, and many other sectors uh, as well. Uh, also coming up uh, over the next 30 minutes as well. Uh, we're going to have, of course, Chandra Kurt's uh, results, uh, of course, uh, four briefs that have been given to her uh, about uh, wines uh, to be consumed. And also uh, just after the news, uh, we're going to be talking to Christoph Ahmed. Uh, of course, checking in to see what's in the German paper is also talking about his uh, his new little special uh, that we headlined as well. But now over to London, Emma Nelson's there with the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. COP26, the UN Climate Change Summit, begins later today in Glasgow. The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the summit will be the world's moment of truth. Japan is holding a general election today. It's being seen as critical in providing Fumio Kishida, the country's new leader, with the public mandate he needs. Saudi Arabia has ordered Lebanon's ambassador to leave by the end of today over insulting comments by a Lebanese minister. The Gulf Kingdom has also imposed a blanket ban on all imports from Lebanon. And 45 bottles of vintage wine, some dating back more than 200 years and worth hundreds of thousands of euros, have been stolen from a Spanish restaurant. A couple checked into the hotel in Caceres saying they were working for a private wine collector. Among the bottles taken was an 1806 Chateau d'Iquem, which was bought at auction for 12,000 euros in London, but was offered at the restaurant at a price of €350,000. And that's your news on Monocle 24. Back to you in Zurich. Tyler. Emma, did we have a tracker on Chandra? This, 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 like these two people coming, showing up at this place. I don't know. Just Chandra saying that she's over a hangover. What, 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 Emma, what do you make of it? Well, I don't want to suggest anything, but I, I would like to know what Chandra thinks of it. Chandra, quickly. <laughs> well, it, it hurts my heart. But you know, one thing I hear that the, the sparkling wine in the UK gets cheaper. So this makes me happy. Now I get this news. I'm sad again. So no, it, it, it's awful because it's imagine how old this wine is and how what the history he has behind. And now it gets stolen and maybe it gets auctioned wrong. And it's, it's you know, you destroy somehow a, a piece of history or what oh, it's, it's uh, they should they should protect the wine a little bit. But more. this is an inside job. Someone knew what they were doing, clearly. Yeah, I suppose. You know, 45 bottles is not it's three cases. So it's it's. I don't know how they did it. So they 
they feel the car and left. Or? Okay, so then, Emma, here we go. Chandra drives a small Audi, so I, okay. I think, the, I think so, those three cases would well, fit in the back Ty- quite, quite Ty- easily. Tyler, we've had conversations on air when you've transported up to 75 bottles of wine in the back of your G-Wagon. Yeah, yeah, but only within the Swiss border, never crossing it, Emma. Okay. We have, to, we, have to, we have to point that out. <laughs> no, tri- no trips to Spain anytime <laughs> no, soon. But it's a trip to Germany right now. We're heading up to Berlin. Uh, Christoph Obmann, the editorial okay, director of Zeit magazine, uh, is uh, standing by for us uh, this morning. Guten Morgen, uh, Christoph. Hello. Hello, Tyler. How are we this morning? Very well. I um, it's it's a quite a sunny autumn day here in Berlin, and so Berliners are you know walking out and enjoying their walks around Schlachtensee Lake, I guess. Uh, so it's a really beautiful morning here. Yeah, you you paint a beautiful picture. It's it's similar here. I don't know if you heard. Also, uh, your your friend uh, Nina Kunz is uh, is also here this morning around the table. I was very happy uh, to to have actually to listen to two columnists from our new Zeit Magazine Schweiz uh, edition, Nina and Tyler. So I'm very happy to join the round. Yes, absolutely. Maybe just to uh, start um, uh, by, by maybe telling us about it. Of course, the uh, people who gathered uh, a week before last, uh, Christoph, we, we had a, a lovely uh, little event that we did um, here at uh, Dufostrasse to, of course, celebrate uh, the launch of this. Um, and just for our listeners, this is uh, it's going to be a twice yearly supplement to Zeit, uh, to, the, to the main newspaper, but focusing um, on, on Switzerland. Um, so, uh, of course, we can, we're all amongst friends here. Um, was this a commercial play or, or was it really sort of a sense that there was something editorially as well uh, that you can that you can bring to the market as Zeit magazine well you know we we launched uh, Zeit Schweiz as a as a um, uh, a country's own edition uh, at Zeit at the paper uh, uh, quite a few years ago and um, circulation went up in Switzerland since then Um, so um, you know we thought well you know if Zeit Schweiz as the paper product works so well why don't we add some of what we can do from the magazine point of view you know talking about you know personal stories about people living in switzerland their own perspectives on their country and uh, so that's why we launched Zeit Magazine Schweiz uh, we you know we, we've also launched different supplements within germany covering for example frankfurt or munich or hamburg i'm actually going uh, to Frankfurt uh, today uh, to uh, do an interview with um, what you might call Frankfurt's most famous son uh, this evening. And um, the story will be published in Zeit Magazine Frankfurt at the end of the month. So it's it's part of a strategy for, for Zeit Magazine also to be part of the communication and the conversation in different areas, different cities. Um, and um, when it comes to Switzerland, of course, there's lots of uh, different cities to be involved in. And Nina did a wonderful piece on Basel in Zeit Magazine Schweiz, uh, the first issue that we uh, published. So I'm very happy to become sort of more part of the conversation within Switzerland. Uh, this, don't keep our um, listeners in suspense when you talk about uh, Frankfurt's uh, sort of, well, I don't know, favorite son, but Frankfurt's uh, son. Who, who are we talking about? Um, well, um, there is a um, DJ that some of you might know, and he's, he's you know, he's become this techno legend figure, Sven Fett, um, who grew up in Frankfurt and, uh, you know, made his uh, a world career as a techno and a DJ and, and music producer. And um, he actually, you know, uh, used the pandemic, of course, where he couldn't fly out to the world and play. Uh, to record his first album for 20 years. So I'll be talking with him tonight. And he's actually going to be playing tonight in Frankfurt at a club called Freud, which is a 
very, uh, I guess, funny word for a new club. Um, and so I'll be happy to meeting him again. Um, haven't seen him for quite a while. And uh, yeah, this is going to be a story in Zeit Magazine Frankfurt. And, and I'm keen to, I mean, obviously, you know, here's someone who has uh, not just a domestic following, but a European-wide following, a global following. Do you keep these, you know, these interviews confined, Christoph, to, to just the, the Frankfurt supplement? Or, you know, no matter where I am, am I also able to read this uh, in, in the main magazine as well? Or does it find another life within the newsletters as podcasts? Uh, does, it, does, it, yeah, does it trickle out into the wider Zeit world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the great thing about um, the um, digital world in, in the media landscape, of course, is that everything that we published, uh, published regionally or locally is also part of the um, Zeit app. So if you um, subscribe to Zeit uh, digitally, you'll get all these local stories as well. And of, obviously, we are also publishing every story that is uh, being produced and edited for the local issues digitally. So, for example, uh, your, your new column for Zeit Magazine Schweiz, where you talk about the international aspects of Switzerland is, has also been published digitally. So it goes out into the world and everyone can read it as well. Mm. Uh, just uh, when we uh, when we look ahead, this, um, yeah, I mean, obviously you, you want to keep these uh, in, in a German-speaking uh, context uh, as well. But at the same time, you, know, you see some German uh, newspapers or some German media houses also looking, how do they expand beyond their borders? Uh, and, and of course, that means, you know, diversifying their portfolios uh, a little bit. I mean, you could look in, in Switzerland, even though they've not bought papers, but, you know, down the street, NZZ, their investors in Architonic right now, they're now owners of, of Arc Daily, uh, of course, in two very respected architecture and 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 design portals or, or, or websites. Do you see as well, you know, of course, you know, 80 million in Germany plus the greater Dach region is, is one nice market. But at the same time, you are doing, there's an English language edition of what you're doing. Do you see yourselves potentially pushing uh, the brand even further into other languages or if not just just English? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we, we're thinking about possibilities, you know, to do that all the time. I think you have to be very careful and not to sort of overestimate uh, your your own status. I mean, you know, in, within the duck region, uh, of course, the Zeit is probably one of the big media brands today. And our circulation is at an all-time high now, which is uh, also a bit of a crazy phenomenon, I guess. But uh, you have to find a very smart way of, uh, I think, publishing what you do in different languages. But technology... Is, is moving forward so quickly. So we're actually thinking about, um, you know, publishing part of what we do in different languages. Um, you know, but you, I think you need to find a very smart way. I mean, you've found a smart way with, with, with what you do. And, but also, I mean, you know, if we're talking about Swiss International, you know, there might be a way of actually talking about what we do, but the, you know, the sort of the aspect of the international power of Switzerland, the culture within Switzerland in new ways you know, uh, maybe also in audio, who knows what the future will bring. Indeed. And I know you have to catch a train. I've got very strict uh, notes here. Uh, Christoph, uh, train to catch at 1040, or at least to leave at 1040. So it gives us exactly one minute. I'm looking at uh, the back of Nina Kunz's uh, book, Ich denke, Ich denke zu viel. And there is, of course, a little uh, endorsement by you. Uh, you say, diese Texte machen suchtig. Um, just uh, quickly, quickly, uh, your, your take on uh, on Nina's book. Well, I think if you want to know what sort of a young intellectual um, from Europe thinks about the world today and about the influences of technology uh, um, towards her generation, I think you should definitely pick up a copy of uh, Ich denke, ich denke zu viel. 
Very good. Uh, Christoph, always uh, good to talk to you. Go and catch uh, that ICE down to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Frankfurt, and uh, we'll be chatting to you very soon. See you soon in Zurich. Thanks very much. Uh, that was Christoph Ahmed, editorial director of, of Zeit magazine. Um, you know, so Christoph, I feel he sort of set you up a little bit because he said in, in the Neue Schweizer Ausgabe that uh, you did a story on Basel. Here we are sitting uh, and standing actually in, in, in Zurich. Uh, I think a lot of people who you know, might be listening, they, they, they understand the power of brand uh, Basel because of the art fair, because of pharma, because of you know, maybe one, one or two, probably one big design company that's uh, based there as well. Maybe sort of idiot's guide on a Sunday morning. Compare and contrast uh, for us quite quickly. How is Basel different from from Zurich? <laughs> well, first of all, I'd like to say ah, and Christoph Ahmed, um, I'm so grateful for these words. That's so nice. And then I find it really hard to generalize, obviously. And uh, I was kind of afraid I would never be able to go back to Basel after writing <laughs> this piece. But I think that Basel is just more laid back and I visited the city so often um, now also to write this piece. And for example, in Zurich, I often feel underdressed, even though I make an effort um, and in Basel, I never do. Um, and on a Sunday morning in Zurich, I think the big difference is kind of the, the lake because it's just kind of grand. And in Basel, everything seems to be smaller and the distances are not that far. So yeah, I think I think that's the m- main point. It's more laid back. But then on, on the flip side, you also hear, and this is maybe from outsiders who are working for big pharma companies, etc. People also say the city is very hard to to crack. Uh, that that. I always hear about a Basel mentality, people coming into the city, that it is quite closed. Um, and I don't know if you if that is true or maybe just people are so laid back, they're just not interested. And that's really interesting because I think I'd say the same thing about Zurich. My partner is from Germany and he wasn't invited to kind of a dinner party, not by expats in Zurich for, I think, five years before I think people kind of started to invite him. And I think, I mean, I grew up in Zurich. And were you a couple at this time? You, you were invited, he wasn't invited? This sounds very extreme. Yeah, no, I think, the, I mean, I grew up in Zurich. Um, I, I lived here for 30 years, which is a very long time. And I think the problem is, I know people from, you know, like kindergarten, high school, the drama group I was in at 13, um, university, it's just there's so many people and I have like very little time to meet all the people that I, you know, met in the past three decades and I think this can I think people just have a problem with time management when they grow up here and it's not that they don't want to get to know anyone it's just they don't have the time that's just <laughs> don't, don't you agree? Well, no, well I think it's also the issue time management is difficult because this is like the world's biggest village too so also you just bump into people constantly so as much as you want to be there on time you see someone you know uh, at the tram stop and then you see someone on the tram and then someone honks and waves at you it's, yeah. it's complicated like you you really you can't get you know by like some tomatoes without bumping into an ex here it's impossible <laughs> <laughs> John you're uh, listen we probably need an, an extra voice you you're see you seem to be in Basel quite quite a bit uh, your, your take and uh, how, how do you contrast the two well, cities well I got I got um, um, a little bit acquainted with Basel during the pandemic because we couldn't travel so I was tired to cook all the time so I thought we have to go to a hotel and then there's this nice hotel craft in Basel and so it became our office and I started to walk and, and see the, the, the city. For me what you feel there 
is absolutely, it's a border city. You can feel that there are two countries uh, to each side. It's, it's a more modest city. Yes, maybe you don't get into the families, but it's more modest. Zur- Zurich is much more, you know, you have to show off, you have to, 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 to tell who you are. And Basel is modest. It's also more, more scientific people because of the pharma industry so actually I felt very comfortable to be there I, I felt not so threatened like sometimes in Zurich mm. okay final word to you on this Benno if, <laughs> if you want word. <laughs> but uh, just to conclude that that discussion it's actually quite nice that we don't buy into that weird rivalry between the two cities that very much exists that in which many other countries have equivalents of that, but certainly Basel and Zurich, which are also, by the way, very distinguishable by their accent, by the dialect of Swiss German that the two cities speak. But the two have their upsides. And I, I very much agree with that take that Basel is probably a bit more of the laid back version of Zurich. Maybe it's because the Rhine, the river there is so massive and flows so slowly that it makes people a bit more relaxed than in busy Zurich, always trying to be super businesslike. So I like both for their very respective qualities. Very diplomatic of you. (laughs) We are going to cross over to uh, Bangkok uh, now. Our Gwen Robinson uh, is there. Of course, this is uh, Gwen. uh, Good uh, good afternoon, by the way. Sawadika, Tyler. So Adekar to you, Gwen. Listen, uh, we, we've seen so much news now over the last, I would say, probably two weeks. Uh, already, uh, there's been you know, images of you know massive Zoom meetings that seem to pull in every region of, of Thailand with you know various people with epaulets and um, and medals on uh, from uh, from the military, uh, of course, talking about this great grand uh, reopening. Um, and and November first uh, seems to be uh, you know upon us. Um, uh, are people going to be be flooding in? What what? And again, I guess we should probably frame this by saying there's been a lot of mixed messages as well. So, bring us up to speed with what's happening, Gwen. Well, as best I can, because as you said, I mean, I think uh, it's uh, gotten to the stage where I think a lot of people in Thailand and people outside who want to come in don't believe anything until it actually happens. Um, but. We have all been told, and of course, it was only finally announced as decided on Friday. So apparently from tomorrow, uh, we've got a whole new regime that is uh, welcoming international travellers, but only those from an approved list of 45 countries and uh, plus Hong Kong. Uh, if they are fully vaccinated, they can come in with no quarantine, uh, no restrictions, except that there are always catches. They will have to stay in a hotel and have a uh, COVID PCR test uh, on on arrival and wait for the all clear. Um, so that's number one. And uh, that's caused a, a huge sigh of relief to a lot of people in those countries. Um, there's different rules for different countries. If you're fully vaccinated, but you're not on the list of 46 uh, fully approved ones, uh, you can still come in through this Phuket sandbox scheme, which has been quite successful. And then finally, those who have not been vaxxed can still um, come in, but they have a whole lot of other restrictions to contend with. But on top of all this, the the great news, I think, for a lot of people in the main areas of Thailand is the lifting, finally, of a curfew that has been in place for many months and finally uh, allowing alcohol sales in restaurants um, and possibly bars. So um, that appears to be a, a big grand reopening that, as you say, all the, all the men in green with epaulets and also tourism industry officials are, are touting hugely. And we will see how it all goes um, uh, from tomorrow. 
So, so Gwen, just to tell me if, um, if, 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 yeah, let's one was to venture out into to Bangkok then next week, and this means really, you know, almost life as as normal. Does this mean also that street vendors, uh, of course, the markets, all of this returns as well? It will look like Bangkok as we as we knew it two years ago. Well, I can tell you, I'm at a cafe in a very nice street in Bangkok, Soi Lung Thuan, um, uh, and there's a, a, a very, you know, hip weekend street market that sprung up um, last uh, the last few weekends. Uh, everyone wearing masks, of course, but uh, um, that kind of street life is coming back. The food vendors are uh, back, you can see, um, but everyone with uh, with masks and there's um, temperature taking machinery, equipment everywhere you walk in and out. Um, the Thai government did at one point scare everyone by insisting that uh, only fully vaccinated people would be allowed to even go in a restaurant. But maybe you can try that in a country in Europe where, you know, it's it's nearly 100% vaccination. But here, unfortunately, Thailand has really barely reached um, the 40% limit, uh, mark of uh, fully vaccinated. And in fact, um, claims by the, by the, some local officials that everyone in Bangkok has had at least one shot and um, at least uh, 75% of people have been fully vaccinated in Bangkok. Uh, I, I would I would venture not true. There, you can talk to a lot of people who have not been vaccinated in Bangkok, but it does seem most of the people have been. So those kind of restrictions do remain. And uh, I think... Um, that will temper the grand reopening. And like everything in Thailand, I can't see the floodgates opening and people from those 46 countries just sailing in. There still will be quite a bit of bureaucracy and there there still is a lot of forms to fill out and uh, at least one or two tests to take. Mm. Gwen, if we look um, across the, the broader uh, region, you know, ASEAN and, and even, even beyond, mm. so you know, look, if we go up to Korea, we've heard the government there are saying that... November is going to mark sort of the month of, of really being living with COVID that uh, here that, that in, in Korea they want to uh, gradually lift measures. So by the time we get you know, just beyond Christmas, um, it will pretty much be business um, as usual. And we've heard similar murmurings from elsewhere. Big question mark over over Japan. But if you look at this, I guess, from both a yeah, from an economic perspective, but also from a geopolitical perspective uh, as well. Do you think that almost maybe November 1st, uh, you know, it throws down the gauntlet a little bit that that this race, uh, you know, really, really starts and we do see a proper reopening on the part of Asia? Well, you know, that is such a good point, because there is uh, and particularly in Thailand, where and I think right through Asia, Asian people tend to be, you can just see it, far more cautious than, than Westerners to, to watch. I mean, a lot of my Asian friends have been watching in, in, in marvel at uh, how people have ripped off masks in the UK or elsewhere and the images you see on TV. I mean, there's still a great deal of caution here. So I think that uh, there will be a mixed, uh, a mixed uh, embrace of this reopening. Um, and... Uh, it should be said, there's actually quite a bit of opposition in Thailand. Um, there's arguments that it's too early, and that is being reflected, I think, in other parts of, of the region. There was a big ASEAN summit this week, and tourism was discussed. Um, PM Prayut of Thailand was one of the ones urging his fellow ASEAN uh, leaders to really consider getting their act together on tourism. They also want to get more regional cooperation to facilitate the flow of flights and and visitors, but 
um, as you point out, there's a there's a very mixed feeling. A lot of eyes are on Japan. Um, you know, of course, Japan is one of the favourite destinations for Thais. So there's a lot of Thais themselves who'd love to get to Japan. Uh, and I think there's a feeling that after the election uh, in Japan that's today, um, there may be an announcement about that. But I think in Thailand, uh, also to remember, this country is still racking up eight to ten thousand uh, cases a day, even now. And while that might, while you know, in, infection rates might be high in Europe, you've got a, a nearly fully vaccinated population. In Thailand, you haven't. So, I think that's also fueling um, some pushback, particularly from the medical establishment. But let's just say this country is about to fall off a cliff. The economic figures are terrible, and they've just uh, lowered further the growth forecast for this year. And uh, I think. It really was a moment of truth for the government and also industry um, because hotels have been collapsing, um, small businesses have been closing, and I think they really feel that if it doesn't happen November 1, then forget it. I mean, this is the Christmas period coming up. People are making plans. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, foreigners, uh, visitors, want to get back to a nice tropical beach holiday, and uh, I think that's why the ties are moving very quickly now and you can see this happening in Malaysia and even Bali which has tried this uh, reopening uh, not to a great deal of success I gather. Gwen, just quickly before we go, on a rather lighter note, but uh, a moment of conflict uh, as well. I, I missed it, but um, there's an interesting story about Ms. Universe Thailand uh, and, and of course, uh, some issues about, uh, well, perception uh, and, and certainly perceptions when it comes to uh, one's uh, figure and, and body weight. Uh, tell us about how this story has played out uh, since the crowning happened. Well, indeed, I actually have to confess I missed it too because I'm not a great follower of these um, beauty contests, but they're big in Thailand and also right through the region. Miss Universe Thailand was crowned last Sunday, October 25th, and uh, to the surprise, amazement, and also horror, it seems, of a lot of Thais, um, she is a Thai-Australian model um, who is uh, could only be described as Amazonian and very curvaceous and uh, stunning looking by any measure. But uh, what what has happened is a, an incredible firestorm of criticism on the Twitter sphere and like other social media, um, fuming away about how she's chubby or even like fat, and you know how dare they pick someone like that to represent Thailand. It really has um, highlighted some some attitudes that underline a, a quite a narcissistic culture in Thailand, um, which really promotes these uh, paper-thin models and uh, a, a selfie-obsessed culture, really. And uh, she has, uh, like her name is Anjali Scott Chemist, she's hit back saying that she actually is proud of her body shape and aims to represent women of all shapes and sizes um, throughout this competition. And the final Miss Universe is uh, held, I think it will be held in Israel in December. So we, we shall see if, if she's proven right. But uh, adding to the Thai shock is that the runner-up was a Thai African model. So we've got a Thai Australian as, as the number one and Thai African as a as second. So I think that's also a reality check for Thais who, who tend to, you know, <laughs> who tend to prefer, you know, value Thainess and uh they also feel that Miss Universe Thailand this year may not be Thai enough for them. 
interesting, Gwen. If you're looking for a special gig, maybe we can send you off to Israel uh, to be our special correspondent <laughs> at, uh, at Miss Universe 2022. Uh, or Gwen Robinson uh, in Bangkok. Uh, thanks very much for that. Uh, very quickly before we uh, race to the end uh, of, of the show, uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll head over to London. Uh, Andrew uh, is standing by because Andrew Chandra, as we'll recall at the top of the show, he's looking for a, a grand wine. Um, maybe uh, Andrew, are you looking for a sustainable wine as well uh, to to celebrate? Uh, in Glasgow in grand style. I forget how, how, how pointy the brief was. Well, I, I guess in the end, the, no wine is very sustainable around me. It's all going to get drunk at some point. So um, it's, 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 its reserves will be diminished. But yes, I was looking for something that might be suitable to serve as a, as a gesture, uh, well, perhaps more than a gesture, as a, a hint that you can do things better. Well, because because you thought about something big, I think about big wine families because they have a lot of responsibility. And there is Miguel Torres, for example, that does a lot for for environmental, for the planet, and for saving. But there is another family, the Lagheda family in North Italy, and they just launched a new project which is called Terra Alpina, and it's they they partner together with wine growing colleagues in the Dolomites, and and they do um, biodynamic or sustainable healthy wine, red and white. So you can use it for the whole Congress, even for for uh, how many ten thousand guests there is enough wine Andrew, hope that hope that fills uh, fill, fills the bill for you, <laughs> Thank you um, very much, uh, Benno uh, remind us you're, you're, there's something about a ratatouille and and empty shelves I forget <laughs> I, I got lost a very simple vegetable heavy Sunday evening meal and well yeah ideally sad wine I have different varieties already it's already in my shelf well, the problem is that you there really you tricked me. I don't know what you have at of home. Of course. Um, but I thought, you know, Ratatouille origin is Provence, south of France. There's a very good, nice area for wines. You find a lot of South France wines, Languedoc wine. My, one of my favorites is from the Domaine Lortus. Uh, it's a Syrah. It's spicy like the Ratatouille should be. You can eat meat in the Ratatouille or not, and, and the wine will, will work very well. Noted. And can he buy it on a Sunday if he heads to the Hauptbahnhof? Yes, cop in the cop. Okay, very, very good. Uh, Nina, remind us uh, what uh, y- there, were, there was something about. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll recall this. It was just was big budget because of the way the book is doing. So yeah, and uh, all the requests were so fancy. Mine is, was so stupid because I think I said no headache and dry. There is there is no stupid question, only a stupid answer, like my teacher once used to say. Okay. Um, no, it's very. It was not clear for me if you wanted red or white. You just said dry, so I went now for red. And I thought if I think big, I think about Dürrenmatt, our famous <gasps> writer in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. He used to drink a lot of wine, and one of his famous Bordeaux Saint Emilion was the Chateau Villemorie. It's uh, it's uh, I don't know. It inspired him a lot, and I think wine drinking should, of course, not give headache, but should always inspire you. Okay, Emma, standing by very quickly. Uh, Chandra, in less than 15 seconds. Emma, what did you want? I wanted something to uh, eat with processed end of pumpkin and something to a little pick-me-up in a hip flask, please. You made me all spiritual because I go to the second one <laughs> for the flask. You know, with pumpkin, you take always apricot in this. How do you say schnapps in English? It's schnapps. And schnapps. then for, for uh, and you can hide it and it smells good like this apricot in taste. And uh, for the pumpkin, you take a creamy round wine. And because I thought about the family when I thought about you as the Sadi family from South Africa. They do a wonderful Chenin Blanc and this will fit perfectly. Thank Emma, you, work for you. Absolutely. I like the idea that it has to be secretive as well. I quite like that. Excellent. Chandra Kurt, Nita Klins, Ben Otzog, Andrew Tuck and Emma Nelson, thanks very much uh, for joining us today. Also thanks to Christoph Amon and Gwen Robinson, our producers Emma Nelson, Marcus Hippie and Desiree Bendley in London. Christy Evans also looking after us. I'm Tyler Brulé. I'm back next week. Have a very good Sunday.